If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verses 47 through 53. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Good evening. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. We ask God for your blessing upon these people. And God, as you're uh, revealing to us what you want us to learn, may it not just stop at knowledge, and may it not just stop at conviction, but may it bring transformation to our lives, may it bring change to how we do things, to how we think, to what we say, that it brings about change to our being and our character. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you're new here, uh, we just go through a book of the Bible, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and, and so we're in Luke. I've lost track of how long we've been in Luke. Is it like three years or something? Is this the longest book of the New Testament? Come on, it's like, it's long. And then these chapters are really long, you know, there's like 70 verses. Here we are in Luke 22, verses 47 through 53 is our text this evening. And to remind us of the context of our scripture this evening, uh, we're going to have to turn back to verses 1 and 2. So let's go back there and read that first. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now we have to keep that in mind as we are looking at these scriptures because this is the background to uh, what was happening before we get to our verses, uh, verses 47 through 53 this evening. And as Jesus knew of his betrayal by Judas and and this plotting by these religious leaders to kill him, uh, last week we looked at Jesus' humanity and the agony that he suffered as the chief priests and the scribes were going to get what they were seeking, which was Jesus' death. And so... To remind us of that agony, let's jump to verse 44, Luke 22. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus agonized, and then he rose up, and he went into prayer to find his disciples sleeping. And so he encouraged them to rise and pray, but we'll soon see that they left him. Mark chapter 14, verse 50, Mark wrote that they all left him and fled. So at a time when you need people the most, they deserted him. And I find that kind of true to life. I found that to be true in my life in that when I've needed people the most is sometimes when they kind of took off on me. So for example, Regeneration was going through this really difficult transition about four years ago. And the people that I thought were my friends the people that I thought would be behind me to go through this transition, they left. And I have to admit to you that 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 was probably the most painful time of my ministry, my my 12 years of ministry, was that time frame. And if at any time that I wanted to quit, it was then. And I found out a really, really valuable lesson at that time. 
I can't depend on anyone except for God. And I learned it there, and I, and I lived it through that time. So that's kind of my posture now. You know, I, I'm, I'm not going to depend on anyone except for the Lord. Because people take off and they flee when times get tough. But God always sticks around. He's always there. And for those of you who did happen to stick around during those times, thank you. Thanks. Let's hug after. But for our scriptures this evening, I'd like us to take a closer look at the questions in our text because there are three of them in our text this evening. The first one in verse 48, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And the second question we find in verse 49, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And the third one in verse 52, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? So let's take a look at this first question here starting in verses 47 and 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? The betrayal, right? This is the Judas kiss. And even people who are unfamiliar with the Bible are familiar with this story. Right? They all know the Judas kiss. They all know this betrayer, this traitor, this guy. And if you're not familiar with this, if you've ever been called a Judas, it wasn't a compliment. Right? That, that, was, that was not a nice thing to say about you. Just, oh, somebody called me a character in the Bible, called me a Judas. I must be awesome. No, you're terrible. Judas knew where to find Jesus. He led the religious leaders to Jesus and then to make it as clear as possible to them as to who Jesus was and which one they were to arrest, he was going to give them a sign, he was going to give them a signal that the way I'm going to tell you guys is I'm going to give him a kiss. Now Judas is pretty sly. He wasn't going to make a big scene out of it and he wasn't going there and just saying, you know, when you see me, I'm going to point him out to you. I'm going to point Jesus out. He just did something that was really customary. Like for us, it would be a handshake. But for them, it was a kiss. That was the greeting. It was a kiss. And so that was the sign that was going to be given to them. And so Jesus asked, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas, are you going to betray the very man who will wipe away the sins of humankind, who gives hope to the world? Now, how did all this happen? How did one of Jesus' closest friends come to betray him? Well, we need to look back to verses 3 through 5 in Luke 22. Let's go there. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. There was a lot that happened before Judas reached this point of betrayal. Judas' path of betrayal started out long before this night where this kiss took place. If you look back at what happened with Judas, he was the one who kept track of the finances. And if you look back to the story of Mary where he questioned Mary who took a pound of this expensive ointment made from pure nard and she anointed the feet of Jesus and she wiped his feet with her hair. John chapter 12. Let's pick up that story in verses 5 through 6. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, Judas, not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. 
So Judas' journey of betrayal happened even before this occurrence of stealing from Jesus' purse. And I believed it happened when he started hiding from Jesus who he really was in his heart. We're not told when that happened, so we don't know, but it's evident that he was lying to Jesus and he was also lying to the spiritual community around him. So I think it was way before. There was some character flaw way before any of this stuff happened. And he wasn't consistent with who he was on the inside and how he was portraying himself on the outside. Because on the outside, he's hanging out with Jesus. And he's cool with everything that's going on. And he's going there and he's witnessing with people. And he's observing these miracles happening. And he's talking to people. But on the inside, he's really about his own personal agenda. And what he portrayed publicly was the guy who had it all together. Who was the guy in charge of Jesus' ministerial finances. And who was saying that he wanted to give money to the poor. But privately in his heart, it was really to help himself to the money and to live out his own selfishness. Now it's football season right now. And we are in Raider land. So I'm going to use that as an illustration. And for those of you who have no desire to talk about sports or anything like that, let's just say it's a band, a team, any kind of team. Now back to Raiders. If you are smart, while you are in Oakland, you are a Raider fan. Okay? Just please, I don't want to visit you in the hospital. I don't want, not for that reason. You know, not for those reasons. Because there are some really crazy guys out here. Like, they wear masks and spikes and they, they do all that stuff. So, while you're in Oakland, you are a Raider fan. Once you leave, go back to your whatever you were before. Anyway, do you know what happens when a player on the team doesn't buy into the game plan? They're just not buying into... When a band member is just not kind of on board with the band's direction. And then they start publicly criticizing like the team ownership or the management or in the case of a sports team, the coaching staff and or other players and things like that. And instead of doing it privately with the people who can address their dissatisfaction, their discontentment, they start airing their dirty laundry in public. And they just start talking in public about what's not right and criticizing a thing and all this kind of stuff. One of the things about people like that is that they are physically there, but they're really not there. Their heart's not in it. Their mind's not in it. Even though they put on the pads and they put on the helmet and they put on the jersey and they look like a raider, uh, they're really not. Right? They just look like it on the outside. And on the outside, they look like they're part of the team. But on the inside, they're not committed to the team. Their heart's just not in it. And you see all these contract disputes and all these kind of things or bands breaking up. And around, well, for whatever reasons, all these kind of things. And so I, I've been on sports teams and I've been coaches on them and stuff like that. And those particular types of players, they're just not pleasant to be around. And they're just toxic these are poisonous people, not just on the field, but in the locker room or for a band in a green room or in social settings or wherever they go. They just reek of poison. And for any of you who have participated in some sort of team sport or a choir or a work environment or a church or anything that requires a team of people to work together, you know that teaming up with this type of toxic person is just a dreadful experience and you probably don't like working with them because their heart's not in it, their mind's not in it. And that's who we have in Judas. 
You know, he'll dress up for the ministry and he'll hang out and he'll do his part to, to look like he's part of the team, but his heart's really not in it. And he hid himself from what he was really like. He hid his sins of greed, of covetousness, of lying, of stealing, of idolatry. And none of his sins were glaringly evident to those around him because when Jesus told the disciples at the Passover that one of them was going to betray him, they had no clue. They had no clue who Jesus was talking about. So this guy was slick. I mean, he didn't let on at all that he was the traitor. And so they started questioning one another, right? Verse 23. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. So no clue at all. Because he kept his sin private and he kept it to himself. And maybe because he thought his sin was small. That, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I didn't kill anyone, at least not yet. And so that's the thing with sin, that you might not think that it's a big deal or a big thing, that it's just a tiny thing because the lie I'm telling, it's not that big of a lie. Or the amount that I'm stealing, it's not that big of a thing. I mean, I'm not stealing that much or I'm not lusting that long, you know. And so you enter into this really dangerous, compromising territory because Judas's betrayal to Jesus no doubt started small. It was a subtle thing. It wasn't suddenly he ended up at that night, oh, I'm going to betray Jesus and kiss him. And it didn't end up like that. We see a pattern that way back when he was already stealing from the money bag. And even before that, I would argue that there was probably a series of poor choices he made even before the money bag that also led him to that kiss on that evening. And so I think our betrayal is similar. We don't suddenly end up in addiction. Right? It doesn't just all of a sudden happen. You're not suddenly addicted to pornography. It started somewhere. You started looking at it somewhere. Someone introduced you to it. Or whatever sin that you are currently struggling with, it didn't start out like just, boom, I'm struggling with this thing. It started out probably subtly and probably small. And there were a series of happenings and not necessarily Satan entering into you like in verse 3 when he entered Judas, but more likely a series of choices that have, have led you to where you're at. Now, whether they were choices that others made that are currently affecting you or choices that you are making that affected you, but ultimately in the present as adults, to take responsibility for the choices that we're making. We can't control the other choices people are making, but we can only take responsibility for our own choices. So how has your decision-making been? Judas decided he'd rather betray Jesus instead of allow Jesus to change his heart. And he'd rather keep his sinful life instead of allowing Jesus to transform his life. He'd rather hide his sin rather than exposing it to Jesus, who could help him deal with it, who could help address those things. And I don't think it's all that different from you and me. We struggle with some sins, and oftentimes we will go into hiding, right? We'll deal with something, and we don't want to confess it to people that are in our lives. I'm going to deal with this myself, and then after I get my victory, I'll come back. How are you doing You know, it's rare, and I see it all the time where people who were really involved in church before, or they attended church regularly, or they attended a small group regularly, or they served regularly, and then all of a sudden it just comes to an end. They've just stopped. And a lot of the time, 
There's some sort of sin happening in their life where they don't feel like they can be around that stuff anymore and, and you just start not seeing them around as much and, and they're not involved as much and they don't come around as much. And it's not all the time, but a lot of the time. And maybe it's our fault as a church. Maybe we're being too judgmental. Maybe we're being too condemning of these folks and not being open enough and gracious enough and extending grace to them to say, we understand that you failed and get up and let's try again. And maybe we're being too hard on people, not to say that we are to be lax about not being righteous, but sometimes we kind of kick our wounded, we shoot our wounded as a church, right? We, we, they're already hurting, they're already disappointed in themselves, and then we kind of like rub mud in their face, and we put salt in their wounds, and, and we just kind of like say, nah, 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 nah. And instead of like, hey, I'm here with you, get up, let's try again. And oftentimes, it is sin that goes unaddressed, And there are times when living in sin is just a lot easier than confessing it and repenting of it and changing it. Because a lot of times, sin feels good. Right? I mean, it's pleasurable. And in the short term, it's like a great thing sometimes in terms of the short term and how it feels and makes you feel and validated and stuff. But in the long term, it's so damaging. Now, what's part of the damaging part? That you leave community. Isn't that kind of a sign of unhealthy habits? That if you leave community to go off alone because you want to go participate in some sin? Isn't that a sign that something's not quite right? And you want to separate yourself from a spiritual community that I hope is encouraging to you and is uplifting to you and wants to support you. I hope that our church is like that for you. And if it's not, we need you to help us change. But that's what I hope we are to be. And And so for us to be a community where we can come together and we can confess our sins to one another and pray for one another so that we may be healed, as James wrote in James chapter 5, verse 16. Now let's look at this second question, verses 49 through 51. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Do you see that the disciples just totally freaked out here? Can you imagine the the scene they're here and like, ah! They totally forgot what Jesus told them earlier. Totally forgot. They've just gotten totally stressed out. They're freaking out right now. And they forgot the things that Jesus told them earlier. Like in verse 38, that he was numbered with the transgressors. Or in verse 39, that it's not about the swords and the violence, right? Like that's, that's enough of all that sword stuff. And this wasn't anything new to the disciples. I mean, they've experienced things like this before. Remember Luke chapter 8, the, the storm? They've kind of gone through stuff like this before. Verse 22 in chapter 8. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. So these guys, they've experienced this before in terms of this overconfidence. They're confident about getting to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Several of them have been fishermen, and they, that's what they did for a living. So they knew the weather patterns. They knew the condition of the water. They knew the best fishing spots. They knew about conditions, whether wind or whatever else. And so when Jesus fell asleep and the storm they could see coming or whatever, it wasn't a big deal. Because, you know, hey man, we've, 
We got this under control. I mean, we've fished these waters our whole life. And so here we pick up the story, verse 23, Luke chapter 8. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. You would think that after that experience, they would have learned a lesson about faith. A lesson that Jesus commands the winds and the water, and they obey him. And so here we are. Um, there's really no need to freak out with these guys because he controlled like nature. So like these guys, it's not a big deal. But they don't. They, they freak out. They freaked out at the storm. And here, they're freaking out at this crowd here, and they're taking swings at people. And I'm sure they were confident in both situations. During the storm, I'm sure that they were so confident and they were like, hey, you know, it's another storm. And they started to try to take control and they were like, it was windy and the storm's coming. They were like, hey, like, take the mast down so that no more wind blows our ship over. And start getting buckets and start like taking water out of the boat. It's filling up with water. And I'm sure that these guys were just kind of doing their own thing until we're dead or sunk. And it's the same thing here in that they should have just gone to Jesus in the first place. You know, back in the storm, it wasn't until like later on, Jesus, help, help. And it's the same thing here where, where they're freaking out because these guys come out of the night and they're trying to take control of the situation. They're trying to bring the mass down. They're trying to take a bucket of water and empty out the ship by chopping some guy's ear off. And they're trying to take control of the situation. Right? They're fighting. They're not kind of resting in, in what Jesus has already told them and having rest and comfort and peace in God's divine plan that Jesus had to go to the cross. He was going to suffer. He, and He's told this to these guys numerous times. And it gives me so much hope because Jesus chose these knuckleheads. Right? Because He chose these guys to bring forth the Gospel to the world. These guys who deserted Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Peter, who in verse 33 says, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with You and to death. He's like, gone! Right after He chops the ear off and Jesus heals him, He's like, uh, uh, and He's gone. And, and it's the same thing with us. We're just average people who sometimes we have these great intentions to affect the world with the gospel and, and we get motivated and we get convicted and we're, we're just telling God, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to go out there. We're going to start sharing with people. And then when time comes, when we get a little bit of uh, adversity, we're gone. So we don't do much in Jesus' name. And I hope this gives you hope because the disciples weren't that different from you and from me. Because the Bible's pretty forthright about their shortcomings and their failures. And in fact, I take that as really good news. I like that the Bible is showing us how God uses these imperfect people to accomplish His perfect will. Otherwise, where do you and I fit in in all of this? Because how many times have you and I failed? I mean, can you imagine if the disciples were perfect? That they did everything that they said they were going to do. I'm going to go to prison and to death for you. And Peter did. I mean, what hope would that give you and I? Because we'd be like, 
I didn't do that. I can't do that, and I might as well give up. I can't do what they're doing. The only one presented as perfect in the Bible is Jesus. Everyone else you find in the Bible is not. Which, if the Bible wasn't true, why is Jesus so consistently presented as perfect and everyone else is not? And we're not talking about one author, right? I mean, in the span of the entire Bible, we're talking about 40 authors. And we're talking about uh, scriptures written over 1,600 years. A span of 1,600 years. So it's not like this guy conferred with this guy and this guy conferred with this guy. And, well, we'll just make Jesus look perfect and we'll make God look perfect. And, hey, look, how can that be fictional? You know what I find odd? I find it odd that we fight for the things of God in worldly ways more than we do in spiritual ways. When, when we know that our battle is spiritual. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Yet this is what Peter struggled with when he cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. He didn't keep in mind that he was battling in the spiritual realm. He was just thinking in this worldly, earthly realm. And this is what we often do. We often wrestle against flesh and blood when it's a spiritual battle. And we start taking things into our own hands. We just had an election. Don't you find a lot of Christians trying to take things into their own hands in politics? I mean, it's crazy, right? They, they built entire platforms praying on us Christians. You have to stand against this because this is abortion or same-sex marriage. Be careful. And they prey upon the fear of those things and they want to get your blood working on all these types of things. Or what about like nonprofit work? Because a lot of nonprofit work is awesome, but a lot of it is addressing social justice issues. A lot of it is addressing causes that we want to stand behind and fight for. And it's not to say that we don't get involved in those types of things. It's not to say that we don't get involved in politics. But how much more do we wrestle against flesh and blood in regards to those things in comparison to how much we pray about those things? Really, how much have you prayed about those things as opposed to debated someone on the other side of an issue that you don't agree with? And you're just like sparring back and forth and jousting with them back and forth. But how much time have you really prayed For those people. How much more are we prone to do something before praying about it? Where we rely on our gifts or we rely on our skills and we rely on our experience rather than relying on God to move and acting upon things that we need to pray about and following what he wants us to follow in his will as opposed to us like leading the charge and saying, oh, by the way, God bless us. Did you notice that the disciples reacted really poorly in the storm? And then they reacted really poorly to this arrest. Even though Jesus is right there. Did you notice that? He's in the boat with them. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane with them. He is right there. How can we as people who follow Jesus miss it so badly when Jesus is right there? And I think this is the issue. It's because he's there, but he's not here. He's not in our character. He's not in our heart. He's not in our mind. He's not in our thought processes. 
He's near us and we're supposedly following, but he's not in us. And I think this is what the disciples were struggling with, that Jesus was not in their reasoning. He wasn't in their prayers. He wasn't in their character or their thinking. And so they were just acting out of what they knew, out of their experience, out of what they thought was the right thing. And we do this all the time. Because in politics, we do this thing before sitting down and thinking through compassionate ideas, and we're looking at ideologies before compassion. Maybe I'll touch upon it later, but I want to move forward. Verses 52 and 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. So you notice how Jesus was calm. These guys are all freaking out. They're chopping someone's ear off. And Jesus is calm while his disciples freaked out. See, he was ready after this time of prayer, after this time of being with God, and he was in command of the storm in Luke chapter 8. Here we find him in command of the situation in Luke chapter 22. And so we come to the third question in our scriptures this evening. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Now, why is this large mob there to arrest Jesus? Chief priests and officers of the temple and elders, and there are actually more people than this because even the high priest's servant is there, so there's more people than that. Why are all these people there in the cover of darkness with swords and clubs? I mean, don't you find that odd? That's odd. Because was Jesus really that much of a threat? I mean, what were they really afraid of? They've seen what Jesus has been doing for three years. Were they wanting to intimidate Jesus and and his disciples? You know, come up with this large mob and with arms and we're ready? There's probably a lot of truth to all those things. And all those things are probably valid reasons as to why that was. But the truth was they were intimidated by Jesus. They've had it out for Jesus since Luke chapter 4 when Jesus rolled out the scroll of Isaiah and he read from it. Luke chapter 4 verse 18 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And ever since that moment, they witnessed Jesus prove to them exactly what He said He would do in Luke chapter 4. And since that time, they've been watching Him. They've been intimidated by Him. They've also been angry at Him and also resentful and bitter at Him. Why? Because He was speaking with authority, not from man like they were, but from God. Because He ministered to people who were really, really messed up. And those people in turn loved Him. And these guys couldn't figure out why. Why aren't we effective in the community? It's because they weren't loving people. They weren't healing people. They weren't taking care of people. They weren't doing those things. And Jesus was. And Jesus was doing these miraculous things. Well, these guys aren't doing much. They're just kind of sitting around in temple and saying, Oh, what do you think uh, Rabbi so-and-so says about this? Oh, Rabbi so-and-so says this about this. And they're just debating and they're just having these theological discussions, but not ministering to the people. So that 
built up all this frustration over the years to this point where this large mob is armed with clubs and swords under the cover of night because this is it. We've had enough of this guy. This guy has taken more people. He's affected more people. He's doing all this stuff and, and we're just not happy with it. He has taken away our influence. He's taken away our power. In verse 53 it says, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me and they did it at night. Why? Because what they were doing was unlawful. It was illegal. But Jesus recognized the fulfillment of God's plan, and so this was the hour. He wasn't going to fight it in terms of saying, well, you know what you guys are doing is illegal? And you wonder how Jesus' question here would have affected those who didn't have an agenda against Jesus, like the high priest servant. Because they were there because they were ordered to be there. They weren't there because they were like, ah! And he said, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? How that question must have challenged those who knew Jesus wasn't a criminal. It's like, yeah, why are we out here like this? What are we doing? Now, do you ever do things because you think it's the Christian thing to do? But in doing it, you've lost compassion in doing what you're doing. You've lost sight of the face on the other side of the debate. And you've just looked at the issue. You've just looked at the cause. You've just looked at the person on the ballot. You've just looked at the proposition. But you're not looking at a person. And Jesus looks at the crowd and he looks at who they are. And he notices they are being led by religious leaders who have misled them. And he's misled people like this high priest servant and the other people that are there because they have to be there. But this movement, this illegal, unlawful movement is led by religious leaders, religious leaders who are fighting the wrong fight. I mean, they're fighting against Jesus. Now, how many times do we Christians get caught up in the wrong fight? And I think it's a lot, especially in the Bay Area. We're we're caught up in all this political stuff. Right, So in the realm of politics or in the realm of social agendas and justice agendas and oftentimes very, very good causes, we are actually seeking to suppress Jesus for the very things that he's actually standing up for. Like compassion. Have we let the cause come before compassion? Have we let the physical work come before the spiritual work? Namely, prayer. And you notice that it was the religious, it was the orthodox who opposed Jesus most violently. And so it makes me question the church. Is the church really directing people towards Jesus or to some cause that they think is Christian, but it's really not because it's lacking in the compassion? And so are we pushing people towards an agenda or a work or a cause, but not necessarily Jesus? And you know what? And this is for all sides of an issue, whether it's an abortion, same-sex marriage, or any other hotly debated topic. Because you know what? You're going to find people who claim to love Jesus on both sides of any issue. You're going to find them, right? But is the focus really Jesus or is it on an issue? Because they're not one and the same. Jesus is God. Jesus is Jesus. Anything else is an idol. That cause, that agenda, that social agenda, that justice agenda, that whatever else that you've placed in place of God is an idol. Only Jesus is Jesus. So what do we typically do? How do we typically react? 
the church, from my standpoint, we come in protest. We come in a bunch of people. And we come and we want to stand against something. And we come in numbers. And, and we're like that crowd. We're like that crowd in the darkness. And we're, and we're coming. And, we're, and we come armed. We're not coming to extend hands of compassion. We're coming to like fight with like clubs and swords. And we're ready to fight. Or maybe we're on the other side. Maybe we're on the other side and we feel like, oh, it's the world that's coming upon us and the world is coming against us and the gay agenda and same-sex marriage and abortion and all these things that your orthodox, evangelical, conservative Christians are standing against and we feel like we're the disciples and we're standing back there and when they come at us, then we freak out. We're like, ah, yeah! And we chop off people's ears. And we're just making a mess out of things because we're freaking out. But where do we find Jesus? He's calm. He's not freaking out. He's not freaking out. In fact, he pauses and he asks a question to the crowd to challenge them about their convictions. And he says, you could have arrested me at any time, but you come out here like this. Why are you guys like this? And what else does he do? He heals the high priest servant by putting back on this kid's lopped off ear. And he's not freaking out about the things that we freak out about. Right? We freak out about this stuff like, oh, I can't believe it. This agenda is going to take over us. And if we don't stand up for our moral values and our own values, I don't think Jesus is freaking out. I think he has everything under control. I think he's, he's sovereign. It's all part of his plan. And it's not to say that we are not to take action, but it is to ask how we're going to be like Jesus. How are we going to be in the calm? Are we going to be in the storm? Are we going to freak out in the garden? Are we going to take people's ears off? Are we going to run? Or are we going to come in protest and armed with swords and clubs? We are to pause and we are to seek God. That's what Jesus did that night. He prayed all night long where he prepared himself for this hour, an hour which is not a surprise to him at all. He knew the plans all along and so did the disciples. He told them the plans and he knew he was going to be arrested. He knew he was going to suffer, be tortured, hang on the cross. His disciples knew that. He told them that multiple times and they still didn't hear it because they didn't understand how Jesus How can that possibly be victorious? How can suffering and death possibly be victorious? Victory is when we're in control and we are in the top and we're on the throne and we're ordering people what to do and we are in control. So how in the world can dying be victorious? And so there's totally confused. And so in the middle of this, these guys are here and they're like, we're outnumbered. They have swords and stuff. And Jesus is not fighting And he's not saying, all right, let's go, guys. He's just standing there putting ears back on. And he's like just standing there and asking them questions. And like, well, what are we going to do next? Hold hands, sing Kumbaya. I mean, come on, Jesus. Let's let's just swing some swords here. Let's just fight. And he's not. And so they freak out because this is not what they see as winning. And so what do they do? They go back to their comforts. They go back to what they were used to. And they get off mission. Because what do we find Simon Peter and six other disciples doing after Jesus' death in John chapter 21? They're fishing. (laughs) Back to fishing. 
right? Fishing fish, which was a comfortable thing to do, rather than fishers of men, which Jesus told them about, which was their mission. And so they totally got off mission and they just went back to what they were comfortable with. Now, if we find ourselves freaking out at times when it would be better to remain calm like Jesus in the midst of a storm or in the midst of this hostile mob, you know, we're in danger of making really foolish decisions. Decisions like freaking out or fighting, violence, or running from the faith. We know that God is in control and His plans are being fulfilled even though things may look bleak and look dark. And that's how it was back in this scene here in the Scriptures. The disciples saw nothing but darkness. Like, we're defeated. They're going to take them away and we're done. And so they're gone. They run. And, and maybe we feel something similar because, you know, like our, our, our economy is pretty bad. Right? Like the, the economic times, it's not just in the U.S. This is a global problem that we're having. And unemployment is really high in the United States. And inflation is continuing to rise at a pretty fast clip. And higher education costs are just outrageous. And then we look at different things happening in our society. And you're looking at the morality and the ethics and what's happening in society and what's falling apart. And, and you look at all the injustices around the world and the famine and the destruction and the storms, and all the death, and all this stuff, all this darkness is around us. But God is in control. He was in control of the storm. He was in control in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's in control now. And God keeps His promises. So if things are unsettling for you, I pray that you receive peace, and to remember that Jesus is on the throne, and that He was calm in the storm. And he was calm in the middle of the Garden of Gethsemane when this mob was after him. It was his followers who freaked out. It was the opposition. It was the religious leaders. It was all the other people around him that were just overreacting. Let me leave you with this. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now where is your faith this evening? That's the question. Because whether you believe Him to be Lord or not is a non-factor. Because the Scriptures say that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is not even an option. The question is whether you're going to meet Him face to face with your knee bowed and your tongue confessing Him as your Savior who saved you from your sins, who saved you from your transgressions, or are you going to meet Him with your knee bowed and your tongue confessing to your judge who is sentencing you to hell for not accepting His free gift of salvation. His gracious gift that He offers to you. All you have to do is accept it in faith. But it will cost you. Not money. It will cost you your life. It will cost you your life to dedicate to Him, to give to Him. Let's pray. Father, very solemn words and ask for forgiveness for any which way we have misrepresented you. 
putting forward our agendas, our political platforms, our causes, um, the way we address justice before even seeking you. Father, may we be prayerful people. And I pray, Lord, specifically for folks who are wrestling with their faith and perhaps they don't have a relationship with you at all or maybe their relationship with you is weak. And so I ask, God, that you would reveal yourself to them in a way where they could grab hold to that, where it would make sense to them. In Jesus' name, amen.